We need your help to keep the North Omaha History Podcast on the air. Please go to NorthOmahaHistory.com slash podcast, click on the Patreon button, and become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. And thanks to Jim Collison for becoming a patron. Welcome to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Each week, Adam takes you on a guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past. Racism isn't just a physical phenomenon in Omaha. It's a systematic, cultural, and attitudinal reality present throughout the city. Adam, tell us more. Well, Steve, you know, when we take a look at the long history of Omaha, Nebraska, going back to 1854, we actually have to, as we've talked about before in other podcasts, uh, we have to look even further back to really see the roots of the city. When Lewis and Clark came through in 1804, they had a slave with them. His name was York. He was the first black man in Omaha, in the Omaha area. And uh, he really set the precedence for racism to become woven into the fabric of the city. It stayed there ever since, man, all the way through to today. You know, we look at the culture, we look at the climate, we look at the economics, we look at the values, we look at the perspectives that the city has, and we can see racism in a lot of different ways. Now, let's keep in mind, when I'm talking about racism here, I'm really talking about uh, the the tool that white people use to maintain their supremacy throughout society. It's not necessarily um, an ethnic tension. It's not uh, Europeans against Europeans. It's not necessarily religious tension. It's specifically around skin color. It's a social construct. Racism is a social construct that was developed uh, to keep black people down and white people up to keep Native Americans down and white people up, and basically to reinforce that in every way that we could. It goes all the way back to the Nebraska Territorial Legislature in 1854 uh, when they really uh, instituted the first census in in the territory, and they found that at least 10 slaves lived in Omaha at that point in the first year of the city's founding. In the next 10 years, while uh, politicians haggled over Nebraska statehood, one of the big issues that held them up was the question of slavery. Uh, They didn't know whether or not Nebraska should be a slave state. They didn't agree on it. There were a group of strong abolitionists who fought against slavery in every way, but there were also pro-slaveholders who lived in early Nebraska. So we know that uh, uh, racism is really in the foundation and fabric of statehood of Nebraska and also the cityhood in Omaha. We look at early Omaha and we discover that the Omaha Claim Club, which was made of all the big wigs in Omaha history, um, your Poppletons, your Burt uh, coming, A.D. Jones, and then, of course, um, all of the other big names that play in there. They uh, had a hand in discriminating against Irish, discriminating against Greeks, discriminating against Mexicans, discriminating against black people, discriminating against Native Americans. They had a hand in it because they enforced it. They acted as a vigilante committee to make sure that nobody did anything that wasn't to the benefit of white people. Omaha has used uh, racism as an economic lever for a very long time um, and and has maintained that power by segregating African Americans from white people and maintaining what they call de facto segregation. Um, there are two kinds of segregation. One is legalized, the other one is informal. And Omaha has, has had some legalized segregation, we could talk about that later, but it has also had a lot of informal segregation. That's what's caused segregated neighborhoods. Like the near north side originally, which then expanded and became Long School neighborhood and the near north side neighborhood and later on the Lake School neighborhood and then around 24th and Lake. 
all the way up into Miller Park today. Uh, the entire uh, population of African Americans in Omaha, the vast majority, live within one designated area. Um, and and that is a historical fact that leads all the way to present days. Omaha has segregated schools, and it did for the first 150 years. They took a little tiny break for a minute uh, with a desegregated busing plan and an attempt to desegregate schools. But today, the numbers bear out the reality that Omaha has very segregated schools, including schools that are exclusively white and schools that are almost exclusively black. Um, we know that African Americans are allowed to work across the city today. However, they aren't able to spend their money freely uh, because they're followed by law enforcement. They're eyeballed by store owners. They're made sure that they feel uncomfortable within certain shopping environments. And so we know that there are white bastions of uh, money in Omaha. And, and the stories go on and on, Steve. Racism is really woven throughout the entire city's history. The Greek town riot. Tell us about that. You know, an interesting reality about America uh, is that there was a period when Northern and Western Europeans, people from English, Scottish, Irish, French, German, uh, Austrian, you know, and the Scandinavian countries, when they really thought of people from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe as being not white. They were identified as being uh, Eastern European, which was code language for of a different skin. Uh, quote, white people, so-called white people, didn't want their daughters and sons marrying people from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, and that included Greece. Uh, there was a group of Greek immigrants who came into Omaha to work on the railroads and in support of the railroads uh, in the 1870s and 80s. And within the first 20 years of their existence in the city, they really did a lot to establish themselves as an economic and social force. They had Greek churches, uh, which we still have in Omaha. They had uh, Greek shopping um, in terms of groceries and confectionaries and uh, uh, regular stores and, and things of that nature. They had cultural activities, but they were all primarily congregated in South Omaha into one four-block area. And in this four-block area lived the vast majority, if not all, of Omaha's Greek population. In 1910, a, a Greek man was accused of uh, being in a relationship with a white woman. And they that wasn't allowed. That wasn't accessible. Uh, so a cop comes to pound on his door in one of these tenements in Greek town in South Omaha. And the Greek guy pulls out a gun, tries to defend himself against the cop, and the cop ends up getting shot. Uh, the Greek guy is arrested and thrown into the South Omaha jail. A riot crowd begins to gather outside of this jail. And the South Omaha cops succeeded in uh, putting the guy into the back of a wagon and hiding him away to uh, the Omaha City Jail and the Douglas County Jail there by the Douglas County Courthouse. When they get him there, the, the, riot, the riot mob in South Omaha realizes that he's not in the building anymore. And so they turn their sights on Greektown. Basically what happened took conspired in less than 10 hours. A uh, bunch of guys ran through the hallways of the tenements and they told all the Greek people, get out of town right now or you're going to die. And uh, so the Greek people packed up as much as they could and they ran out of the buildings as fast as they could. And the smashing and the looting and the rioting began, Steve. They tore apart Greek town that night of um, February 21st, 1909. They killed a young guy. Uh, they, they pushed the entire Greek community out and they basically burnt and looted and rioted and destroyed everything in Greek town. It took more than 20 years for the Greek population of Omaha to reassemble. 
They fled to Council Bluffs, they fled to Blair, they fled to Bellevue, they fled to Lincoln, and they didn't come back to Omaha for more than two decades. And uh, in the meantime, uh, Omaha's went on like nothing happened. And this story wasn't talked about until the 2010s, 20, uh, 2007, 2006, and all of it started to come back out. We still can't trace everything that happened because the media coverage was so weak at the time, and today there really is an interest in a lot of historians, among a lot of historians, to look at the Greektown riots. But regardless, they were definitely a scar on Omaha's racist, racist fabric, as it were. Two lynchings in Omaha. Talk about that, Adam. So in 1891, there was a man named George Smith, and George Smith was a railroad porter who had been accused of raping a woman in Council Bluffs. One day, there was a white woman in Omaha who said that she raped him, and George Smith uh, was arrested, detained, brought to the Omaha jail, thrown in the jail. A mob gathered outside of that jail, Steve, 10,000 people, always 10,000 until the next one. And those 10,000 people dragged George Smith out of that cell. They also called him Joe Coe in the newspapers. And they strung him up and they lynched him right there uh, in downtown Omaha in 1891. And in in the summer of 1919, a man named Will Brown, he was a disabled person, uh, African-American, again, worked with the railroads. Regardless, a young girl named Agnes Lobeck, she was nine years old. She accused Will Brown of raping her. And he was caught and he was thrown into jail by the police. A mob gathered outside of his uh, jail in September of 1919. And the mob ended up nearly destroying the Douglas County Courthouse, what you know downtown today, uh, in an attempt to get Will Brown out of his cell so they could lynch him. Well, they didn't just attempt what they did attempt was to nearly lynch the mayor of Omaha at the time, a guy named Ed Smith. This was the era of Tom Dennison, that wild and rascally uh, crime boss of Omaha who ran the city for at least 25 years. Tom Dennison, he uh, he ran the cops. He ran the, the betting. He ran the politics. He ran the prostitution. He ran everything. He had his fingers all over the town. And Dennison... Uh, basically made Ed Smith, uh, who was a reformist mayor who defeated Dennison's candidate, he made him a marked man. And the rumor has it, and the evidence piles up against Dennison, that he actually instigated this riot, that he sent out provocateurs to get people rallying together. And it worked, Steve. They they got 20,000 people outside the Douglas County Courthouse. They nearly destroyed the courthouse. They nearly lynched the mayor. He was cut down in the final minutes before he died. And then... The police handed over Will Brown. They said, we have 100 prisoners in here, and they're all white. Leave them, leave us, and take the black guy. And they took him. And they lynched Will Brown, but not before. They shot him full of holes. They dragged him through the street. They beat him, and they beat him. They ripped limbs from his body. There are terrible pictures of Will Brown being burnt on funeral fires uh, right outside the Douglas County Courthouse. And... It was a horrible affair. The next morning, they cut up his body parts and the rope that was used to lynch him, and they sold them as souvenirs. There are people in Omaha who claim to still have pieces of the rope. And uh, that legacy still lives with Omaha today. And that's just the most overt racism. That's the most glaring. You know, we start to look at things. We start to look at the situation in Omaha against African Americans, and we can see a pattern of racism in the hiring of African Americans in workplaces. 
where they weren't allowed to work counter jobs, where they weren't allowed to work public relations, they weren't allowed to work customer service. Instead, they were forced to be workers in the backs of dry cleaners, in the back of um, production facilities, in the back of all of these different scenarios. There were African-American porters for the Union Pacific, but they weren't allowed to work in the shops. They weren't allowed to be engineers. They weren't allowed to work beyond that kind of service mode uh, that so many white people had come to expect. There were African-Americans who worked at the slaughterhouses, but when there were layoffs and when there were uh, people sent away, uh, the very first people to be fired were black people. When white people came back from wars, they expected their jobs back, the same job that they had left to go to the war. And when they got back, they found that uh, these packing plants in South Omaha had used African-Americans as scabs to cross the line and hire them in. And so they would beat black workers in order to get their jobs back, literally physically beat them in order to get their jobs back. So you had labor unions against African-Americans. In the meantime, that's jobs. You know, we can also talk about women who were uh, domestic help or who were sewing or who were uh, cleaning and doing these other things behind the background that really made Omaha run. And these women don't get any credit. But then we start to look at the more apparent things. And the fact of the matter is this de facto segregation in Omaha was very, very strict, Steve. It kept African-Americans from spending their money in the places that white people could spend their money. Stores wouldn't uh, stores downtown, including the famous Brandeis store that everybody loves. And, and Kresge and others wouldn't allow African-Americans to shop in those stores. When they would allow them to shop in the stores, they wouldn't hire them to work in the stores. It's the same thing with Reed's Ice Cream. Everybody loves to talk about how great Reed's Ice Cream was, but what they don't talk about is that Reed's Ice Cream wouldn't hire black people to work in the booths, even in the neighborhoods that were African-American. So we have this whole disparity uh, built around race. It's focused on race. Right there in Omaha, but not just in Omaha, even in North Omaha, even in the predominantly black neighborhood. There was a dry cleaner right at 24th and Lake. It was called the Edholm Sherman uh, Dry Cleaner. And Edholm Sherman had a huge facility at 24th and Lake. Uh, today you can see part of it. It's uh, next to the Blue Lion Center where the Union for Contemporary Arts is. And this dry cleaner, uh, they would hire blacks to work in the back. Uh, sort the clothes, iron the clothes, press the clothes, and bring the orders up front. But they wouldn't allow blacks to work at the front counter. And when there was picketing to stop that, the dry cleaner, instead of changing their policy, simply closed shop and walked away. And this kind of thing was indicative. It was a kind of a normal, normal behavior in uh, Omaha. So the other thing that should be uh, mentioned in the same breath is that, you know, when we, when we get nostalgic about Omaha history and, you know, one of some of my favorite groups, um, that are talking about history in Omaha today, including my own forgotten Omaha group that I'm a co-administrator with, you know, my friends, Chuck Martin and Ryan Rowenfeld and I, we really work hard to make sure that that group is inclusive and has a lot of history, but you know, folks love to nostalgize in there and they love to remember the good old days. And one of the things that happens is a kind of, we, we, we take these memories and we put them up on pedestals. And so there are memories about Reed's ice cream that I mentioned, but there are also memories about places like Peony Park and Mr. C's restaurant and Tyner's diner and all of these other places that folks know one part of without knowing the whole history of it. And the whole history of many of these places, Steve, is racist to the core but it's hard to accept as white people that we might have enjoyed a place that was racist against African-Americans just because of the color of their skin. So it turned out that Tyner's Diner would not serve 
African-Americans. It refused to serve African-Americans. It was located over at Saddle Creek and Cumming Street right there at the junction. And uh, totally popular American graffiti-type hangout, hot rods and cute girls and guys wolf-whistling and, you know, Beach Boys playing on the radio and uh, food getting served out to the cars, and black people couldn't get served there. In the 1950s, we have stories of Mr. C's restaurant, which was uh, the... Uh, it was called the Big Boy. No, it was called the Royal Boy uh, Drive-In, uh, and then Mr. C became Mr. C's Restaurant. Uh, they wouldn't serve black people in the front of the restaurant. They would serve them at the back door, but they wouldn't serve them at the front. And that didn't happen when in into the 1970s. And at that point, blacks were allowed to come through the front door. You know, even Peony Park folks love to remember the good old days at Peony Park, and I love Peony Park. I have great memories from the place. Uh, we had a R JROTC dance there. The the ball was held there every year, and and it was just fun to go and ride the stuff and do the things. And I didn't get to go too many times, but I liked what I saw. Peony Park is actually really old. It was founded in the 1910s. It was it was built up next to a field of peonies. Uh, a florist had a whole peony farm out there, and that's why it became named Peony Park. And they wouldn't serve black people. They wouldn't allow black people through the doors into the 1950s for more than 50 years of its existence. It was thoroughly segregated. And so we look at that and, well, you know, that's, that was the times. That's a lot of places did that. That doesn't make it okay though. And that kind of exceptionalism is normal in Omaha. But what I found out that's even more, I, I think worse than that is that even after the initial picketing against Peony Park because it was segregated, Peony Park still didn't allow black people to swim in the swimming pool until 1963, and that was the year that the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, it used to be called, now it's just called the NAACP, the Youth Council there in Omaha picketed against Peony Park, and they actually caused change to happen uh, by lowering the race barrier that didn't allow black people to swim in the same swimming pool as white people at Peony Park. But it took all the way until 1963 and later on to really make that happen. There are other things that, that factor in around racism, Steve, and, and I think it's important to keep an eye on those. We know that Omaha, and we've talked a little bit before about Omaha being redlined, having really strict color boundaries on its housing. And for more than 100 years, those color boundaries were formal. Uh, I'd say 50 years, uh, to be really accurate. We know that in 1919, the United States Army drew a red line around uh, a certain area in North Omaha that today looks like the Long School neighborhood and the Near North Side neighborhood, basically from coming to Lake from 33rd down to uh, 16th. And they said, well, black people, if you stay inside these lines, we can keep you from getting lynched by the white mob that's roaring towards North Omaha right now. And the U.S. Army actually, right after the Will Brown lynching, uh, they formed a, a barrier uh, with machine guns and tents and troops on this area. And they said, if black people stay in here, you're, you're going to be fine. Real estate agents colluded with insurance agents, colluded with bankers, colluded with home sellers to ensure that that red line became permanent. And all the way into the 1960s, blacks were not allowed to move outside of that redlined area in Omaha. Even after 1963, when the United States Congress said the Fair Housing Act made sure that everybody could access every house anywhere despite or, or regardless of their race, even after that, there's been collusion among different factors in Omaha to ensure that black people stay living in certain areas that are deemed okay. Now, today, the physical geographic boundaries are changing. 
and we know that gentrification is coming to the near north side because of Creighton University's development, because of the development of the stadium, because of the development of um, the CenturyLink and all of those different elements down in that area. We know that gentrification is coming to the near north side. But African Americans are being moved to other parts of the city that white people want them to live in areas, of, uh, and and we can get into that later. But the point is that uh, that kind of uh, segregated housing continues. You look on a map, and and I've got maps from studies of demographics in Omaha, and what they clearly show is that the majority of African Americans live east of Forty Second Street. They live north of Dodge. They live south of an invisible line, frankly, um, <clears throat> but but it's what we know as uh, the, the boundaries of old Florence um, and, and black people generally are not allowed and, and, and it, with different kinds of de facto segregation tools, they aren't allowed to live outside of that area in Omaha. There are not pockets of African-Americans that live in far west Omaha. There are not groups of African-Americans who live in south Omaha in mass. It just doesn't happen. And the demographics play that out. There are there are myths. There are people in Omaha who will say, well, we have a black person living in our neighborhood. Your neighborhood has 2,500 people in it, and you're talking about one family of African Americans. That does not break a normative trend. And then aside from the housing, we also have patterns of discrimination in Omaha's education system that are predominant even today, Steve. We have whole entire schools, like I mentioned earlier, that have become all white. We have whole entire schools that have become all African American. And ne'er do the two roads meet too frequently. There are not a lot of integrated schools left in Omaha today. Even the magnet schools, including my alma mater, North High School, are becoming more and more segregated with time. When I went to North in the early 90s and late 80s, uh, North was notorious for putting African Americans and low-income kids into remedial classes, while putting white magnet students and, and uh, middle-class and upper-class magnet students into magnet classes, and including technology and science and math. And the pattern continues today. So we still have all this racism that exists around Omaha, for sure. Adam, I'd like to continue this discussion in an, another podcast. Next week, we'll talk about uh, the proposal to abolish slavery in Omaha in 1859. The birth of a nation plays in Omaha. An Episcopalian priest is jailed in World War II. And the Jewish community in Omaha. And we need your help to keep this North Omaha History podcast afloat, go to NorthOmahaHistory.com slash podcast and click on the Patreon link and become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. And if you like this program, be sure to tell your friends to listen. You can check out Adam's great selection of books on Amazon. And Adam, how can we reach you? You know what, Steve? I love to get inquiries, contacts, and other stuff. I'm available on Facebook uh, through North Omaha History page there, and I'm available through NorthOmahaHistory.com. You can find my phone number, my email, and contact me anytime. Thanks for listening to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Join us next week as Adam takes you on another guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past.